if you want to bet on the future of humanity and where a lot of growth is going to come from, investing in technology is the way to do it. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. All right, this is one of the best episodes I think we've done in a long time. I'm going to tell you everything that we talked about. But first, Spotify just has this like new feature. I want to see how great it is. So basically, if you're on Spotify, go to pull the app up, look at it, look at our My First Million page, and you're going to see a little bell. Do me a favor, hit that bell. I want to see if you'll be notified when we have our next episode. I want to see if this thing works. If it does work, sign up, click the bell, and then tweet at me. Tell me if it works, and I'll like give you a retweet or something like that in exchange for clicking it. But click that for me, and let me know if it works. So today's episode, I think, is one of the best episodes we've done in a very, very long time. We talk about the Amazon liquidation business. I'm actually going to record myself buying from one of these websites. It's a fascinating business where they sell you a bunch of return stuff, but it's packed in a mystery package. We talk about fake data. There's this new company called Tonic that's selling fake data to help you test your stuff. Crazy, fascinating business. And then my favorite topic is this guy called Harold Alphon. He's the Billy of the week, this amazing billionaire that started a shoe company and eventually gave away most of his money, but incredibly fascinating. We talk about a few other stuff like like how Tiger Global is making all this money in the future of VC. That's pretty fascinating. But my favorite part was the Billy of the week. Check it out. And by the way, on your phone, you're probably listening to this on your phone, go to Spotify, click that bell. I think they just released this recently. Someone was telling me about it. Tell me if you get notified, like send like a like a click the bell and then just send me a screenshot when the next episode comes out and tell me if it works. Uh, the Sampar on Twitter. I want to know if this works. I'll retweet you if you um, send it to me. All right. Enjoy the episode. Okay. So what did you think about the Ramit episode? I thought it was pretty good. I thought uh, he does a good job. Like, I guess I always break it up into two categories. How How interesting is the stuff you're saying? And then how interesting are you at saying it? So he was like, I thought he was very interesting in how he says things. Like he bright, he brings energy. He is not afraid to like call something stupid. Like, you know, he, he brings a little bit of that flair that you need for something to be fun. Um, in terms of the info, I thought it was pretty good. I think, um, you know, we talked a lot about courses and I just think not like we are interested in courses because we can make courses that might be successful. And so and he already does that. I don't know how many other people really care as much about how much we nerded out about it, but I don't really care because I wanted to know it. <laughs> and so it was useful. All right, good. Uh, let me tell you really quick about this book I'm reading. It's called Empire of the Summer Moon. Have you heard of this? No, but it sounds very, uh, it sounds like a teenage girl book. No, it's about <laughs> the Comanches, the Comanche Indians. Do you know what the Comanches are? No. What is that? All right, so let me. This is just a quick breakdown. Hold on. How much time do you spend reading? I feel like every time you get on the pod, you're reading a different book. Are you reading like four hours a day? What's happening? I, I it's, when I say reading, it's audiobooks, and I could do at least one a week. So, wow. like, yeah, like I, if I exercise, if I go for a walk, I'll listen to it. So, and I listen to it at like one point two speed. So, like a ten hour book ends up becoming like eight hours, and so I could do that in a week, easy. Uh, is this a problem for you? When I listen to an audiobook and it's read by like a professional narrator, I just hate it and I can't get into it. But when it's the author reading it, I'm like, okay, I'm kind of down with that. 
Is that a problem just for me? Because it seems like most are professional narrator, professional voiceover actors or whatever they call them. It actually is a huge problem for me. So I do two things. The first, if I find a narrator that I like, I go, uh oh, was that my. You find their other books that they've read? Yeah. So if I find a. Sorry, my phone was going off. If I find (laughs) a narrator. Who's your, favorite, who's your favorite narrator? Like some random guy who nobody's ever heard of. You're like, yeah, I no, love so, Craig um, Smith. <laughs> Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow is a great author. He's He wrote Titan. He wrote House of Morgan. I'll go and read books. Uh, he gets a, he has a great narrator that I like. The second thing... So I, if I find a narrator that I like, I'll go and I'll read uh, something that they've done. The second thing that I do is I think more celebrities should narrate books. So I just read this amazing book. I loved it. It was by John Steinbeck. It was like part fiction, part not fiction. And it was read by Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? His name's Gary Rizik or Rezik or something. And it made the book so much better. So lately I've been trying to find books. I don't even know how to say his name. Sinus is his name. I want to go and find books only by like certain celebrities that I know. And that makes the book more fun. So I actually find... and, 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 And you know what's funny? I always think about this. Sometimes it's like, the reason I don't like, I don't really read like self helpy business books that much anymore. And the reason I don't is I found this one author that narrated, narrated literally like 200 like self helpy <laughs> books. And I looked at what he was doing now and he like still wasn't doing much. I'm like, well, if this fucker read all this stuff, then it should have worked. Like you. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you. I thought you were going to say they all sound the same, but you're saying this guy read all these books and he's still, you know, an average Joe. So fuck it. It doesn't work. Yeah. Like I looked up like how much he charged to read a book. And I'm like, dude, what the heck? Like you're making like 50 grand a year and you just yeah, read it yourself. Yeah. What, what the hell is going on? Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. There's no secret formula for customer service, but there is an all new service hub from HubSpot and it's bringing service and support together in one platform so you can deliver the best experiences possible. You can free up your customer support reps time with an AI powered help desk so you can easily support and grow your customer base. The secrets out service hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. So I'm reading this book right now <laughs> called Empire of, the Sun, uh, of the Summer, Empire of the Summer Moon. It's about the Comanche Indians. The Comanche Indians was like 20,000 Indians in America, but it, they were like in the Colorado and West area. But when you think of Indians, like you stereotype as like, um, like when I am in, in my head, I have this picture of like the pilgrims and the Indians coming together. And then eventually the white people like mess them up. So the, Com- <laughs> the Comanches were badass. So they were just like normal. They were kind of normal. They weren't like that particularly special. But then they got a hold of horses in the 1500s and they mastered horses so much so that a Comanche on a horse, what they could do is they could get they could be riding the horse, lean to the side so you can't see them and then pop up and shoot 20 arrows faster than one person could fire one bullet and then reload it and fire (laughs) another. And they were wild. They were wild, wild, wild. They didn't even have the word surrender in their language. Like it wasn't a word. And uh, this is great. I'm now that's my criteria now. When I what do you look for in founders when you invest? Could you have been a Comanche Indian, right? Are you a Comanche or not? I want a Comanche as, as a founder that I'm investing they're, in. That's they're great. crazy. These guys were like, were bad to the bone. And a lot of stuff they didn't do was like great. Like like in their in their culture, it was okay to torture and kill captives and they would kidnap people. And so they're wild. But the whole story is about the history of them. And then also it centers around they kidnap a family or they like take a family, like a white family. And they kill most of the family, but they keep this 12-year-old girl. And they end up like raising her. And she marries the chief. 
and she gives birth to someone who eventually becomes the chief and the white people america after like 25 years get her get her and they think that they're saving her and they bring her back and she's like no i want to go back and they're like no look lady you don't know what you're talking about you need to be here and she's like no 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 like that they're my family now and so out of protest because she like inherited these like these like um you know these values of toughness she's like fine until she starved herself and died wow it's it's the craziest book i've been reading <laughs> you'll, you'll have to read it. it's called the uh, empire of the summer moon it's about the command i can tell you right now not gonna read the book definitely not gonna read the book but i loved that story and i feel like i already got the win i feel like if i go in and read it now i'm gonna do a whole bunch of work and not really get that much more out of it than i already have i'm so happy with what you just gave me well, I got like on this kick where I was reading about Navy SEALs and I was like, all right, who else is badass? And then I got to the Comanches. So Is it because you met what's her name's husband and he's an ex Navy SEAL? One hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> I met him the other day. He's awesome. You wait. Uh, you, okay, great. That's good. Um, all right. We have a lot to go through. Uh this is gonna be interesting. I could, what do you want to start? You wanna start with Harold? Uh, no, let's save him for a little bit later. Uh, let's do some cool ideas. I have a couple. You have a couple, I think. Um, you want to go first? You want me to go? I want you to. Okay. Which, uh, let's start with this. One. Okay. I think, I think this one is, is one of the more interesting ideas. It's kind of random. So I'll, I'll start with that. It's, it's pretty fucking random, but, um, it's this thing called tonic fake data. And so, uh, I'm trying to chase this guy down because I really want to invest in this company now after I heard about it. So my, so I have a cousin. I got a couple of cousins that are in tech. I got three, I think three or four cousins that are in tech. Uh, one of them, my cousin Samir, he tweeted this. And I think his tweet literally has two likes, which is just a shame because like, this is actually like an amazing Twitter thread. I'll, I'll retweet it right now. So let's go see it. It's on my Twitter feed now. Um, but he's like, you've heard about big data, but yeah. what about fake data? You ever heard of fake data? I had never heard of this. So he's like, check out this company called Tonic Fake Data. And uh, they grew about 600% this last year. And, uh, and he starts to like tie some things together. So he's like, you remember when HBO had that thing where the intern accidentally sent an email to every subscriber? And um, it's because, you know, they were doing a test of, a, of, of a, like a, some software system, the email system or whatever it is. But when a developer is doing a test, they have to input some dummy data, right? Some information. Um, and, and so typically, like, you know, a developer will just kind of like make it up. It'll be like, First comma last name, you know, like they, they're just trying to get through the task quickly. So they're just like inputting yeah, fake yeah. data, you know, just from their head. And, um, and so, you know, if you think about this at kind of like a bigger level, let's say you're testing, um, you know, your Uber and you're, tr you have a new feature in your app. And so he gives this example, basically like, let's say you're Uber and you are releasing this new thing about notifications. Um, and so you, there's like this process of quality control testing, right? So they'll, They'll they'll try to like okay sign up as a new user and try it okay let's say you're you're already a user log out log back in pretend you got a new phone right there's all these like if you have a product that has hundreds of millions of users that are living normal weird lives there's all these random different paths a user can take and you kind of need to test your product through each and so um and so there was a guy this is, this is kind of the famous thing is there was a guy who he had logged out of his account on his wife's phone. But even when he logged out, she kept getting the notifications because of just this, like the developer didn't test the feature properly of this use case. You go to a new phone, you log in, you yeah, accept yeah. notifications, then you log out, you're still getting notifications somehow. 
Like, and so, I, which we did all the time. I would walk around and be like, "Hey, who here at the office has an Android? Let me see it real quick." Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Who's got an Android? Okay, I think we tested all of Android. It's like, dude, there's like 200 models of this thing. It's like 2,000 models. You think you just tested Android because you know the one guy who's an Android bro, like you know, used it for a second? So what happened with this Uber guy is uh, his wife got a notification that he was going somewhere, or like your you know your ride is ready or whatever, and she's like, "Wait, he's supposed to be at." some other place and she found out he was cheating he ends up suing uber 47 million dollars because you know wife found out about this left hand blah blah the cheater sued uber which is hilarious and so uh he's giving all these little examples i don't know if you won or not it's not in the thread i haven't haven't done more than thread so so he gives another example let's say um uh, here's the last example it's 2008 um the financial system is crashing banks are failing and banks owned at that time, if you remember, like the subprime mortgage crisis, they had basically on their books a whole bunch of mortgages that they needed to get rid of. And so they needed to sell them super fast because they were like, they were at risk of going bankrupt. And so they, they set up a call center that any re- real estate investor or buyer could call in and make an offer on one of the mortgages they had. Cause it's like an auction. It's like, you know, closing, you know, final sale, everything must go was the, was the idea. And uh, so they hire Palantir, the big data company that Peter Thiel started. And they say, hey, come up with a recommendation engine that will figure out what offer we should accept because we, we don't have time to like vet each offer as they come in. It needs to be quick, like a garage sale type of decisions of like, hey, I'll give you $2 for it. Will you take it? Yeah, go, go, go ahead, take it. Uh, everything must go. And so, um, so the developers were like, okay, we need to like test our recommendation engine for like, should we or should we not accept the offer? But they couldn't use the data because the data had like all this personal sensitive information, right? It's a person's name, credit score, their income, their address. Like it was too much information. The bank couldn't just give it to Palantir and say, hey, use this real data to figure out what offers we should and shouldn't accept. And so what they did was the developers went to the bank's office. They go inside the building and they looked at the data and they said, okay, we understand we can't take this data and use it for our models, but we can replicate this. So like, the way a mannequin is a replication replica of a human body or whatever, they did that to the to the real bank data system of all these mortgages, and so they created a replica that that would have the same like let's say distribution and and outliers and whatnot, but it was all dummy data, it was all fake data, and so they'd use this, they go back, they create this thing, uh, they create the model, it's all successful, it all works. So what happened is, I think the guy from Palantir took like spun, I think he's for ex Palantir, he spun out. He is. And was like, I'm going to create this. Yeah, Ian, Ian Co. I'm going to create this for any business because business, businesses need to be able to generate fake data sets to test all their scenarios from. Like the Uber example. Show me all the things that users do, all the all the different, like they do this step, then this step, then this step, then this step. Cool. I need to be able to simulate those steps um, uh, accurately. And so what they do is they basically say, all right, People are pretty sensitive about privacy and data nowadays. You got GDPR. So companies can't be using digi- using their data for these things or giving, giving data to other groups for it. So tonic fake data can basically analyze your data, create fake da- dummy data, and then let your developers or other developers use that data, those fake data, that fake data that mirrors the real data. And so I thought this is like such a niche problem that you would only understand if you'd ever been through this. But then once you've been through it, you're like, Shit, this solves a big problem that they have no other way to solve. And I love this. This is the opposite of guy who can code makes a to-do list app or makes a, a music streaming, you know, like a playlist generator based on the music you like, right? Those are the 
ideas everyone has that everyone can do. This is an idea no one has that pretty much no one could do. And so I'm like, dude, I'm like super bullish on this idea. And I love this. Um, I love this. And especially now with machine learning, with machine learning, you need a lot of input data to make recommendation engines better. Well, how do you do that? How do you get more data? Well, you can simulate or, or create fake data that mirrors a small sample of real data. So I just think it's awesome. It goes on two big megatrends, privacy and machine learning. And I just love that I had never even thought about this. This is amazing. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, if you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives that I thought was pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. How are they doing? Uh, I think they're doing well. They raised some money. He said they grew 600% in 2020. He, what he does, what my cousin does, is he basically helps people do what he did. Like, uh, you're interested in tech, but you're not a programmer or a designer. I'll help you get your first sales job. In That's tech. what your cousin like does. Tech, tech. Yeah, so he went, and, he went and worked at SIF Science, this like fraud detection, like machine learning thing. Similar story, by the way. Ex-Facebook guys who were dealing with the spam problem at Facebook spun out and created SIF Science. So if you have any platform, they'll help you fight fraud and spam. And uh, using the same stuff that Facebook was building internally, they exported that idea. This is my old import-export framework. And so he was the, he was like a, you know, just like a, what they call SDR, like a sales development rep. Yeah. Basically just spam cold emails all day. And, uh, and then you kind of work your way up, become a manager or whatever. So what do they do now? He teaches people how to get a gig? So he's basically like, yo, you want to break into tech and get a sales job? Like, cool. Most people don't know how to, how to interview for this or how to like do well at this. So he takes you for one month. He tells you, here's a bunch of good companies like that you haven't heard of, Tonic Fake Data. They need sales reps. They have a great product. It's a technical Dude, thing. really? I'll help you. I'll help you understand it. And I'll help you get do the job interview well. And I only make money once I place you. And so he's like a one-man recruiting firm right now for this. That's I think it's kind of an does, does awesome idea. It? I don't know. I think he's just getting started. So I think he's got like, you know, five people at a time right now per month that he's helping get jobs. Like very boutique at the moment. I'll give him a shout. So his Twitter handle is Samir underscore Joher. Unfortunately, no one's going to know how to spell any of those things. But if you go to my Twitter feed, you'll see I retweeted his tweet just now. And I said, that's great. Saying, man. Yeah. I- I, I, Samir is more interesting almost than, than Tonic. I, I, I always thought, I thought that you were going to say than me. Well, he might be. You're pretty interesting, <laughs> but he, this guy sounds great too. He, I, I've always thought that you should that that job that your cousin's doing, Samir's doing, that that could exist for all types of positions. Because I've had when when I was just breaking into Silicon Valley and, and living there, and, and I I would have so many people email me, and they would say, "Which company should I apply to?" And right. for this for this role or that role. I've always, I always thought that that could be a, a cool service. That's so cool that he's doing that, and he's got to take a cut, like a like a percentage of their first year's earnings. Yeah, it's like an income share. Like if I help you get this job, then I get x x thousand dollars. I don't know, I don't know what his pricing is exactly, but I get x thousand dollars. But hey, you just got a job that's you know eighty five k base plus bonuses, whatever. Like, are you cool paying four k to this guy to who got you that job? Like, really was pretty hands on with it. I think people will make that trade every day of the week. Plus, the companies will pay a placement fee 
like it, once he establishes himself a little more, like they already are playing recruiter fees of $20,000 per person. So they will happily pay him once he builds his name a little bit, but it's not super scalable. I don't think he cares. He's just like, dude, I just want to make money and I don't care. Like making 20K a month would be effing sweet. And if, if I could just do that with my bare hands and not have to like run a whole business and have a big team, great. I'm going to do that. And I, I kind of think that's actually pretty smart. I've got a buddy who um, was an executive recruiter for years. And we, he, he eventually needed to... He was like, I want to start my own thing. And I was like, all right, I'll hire you. I'll be your first client. I was his first client. In his first 18 months, he's done close to a million dollars of sales. Wow. Just from recruiting. A one-person recruiting. Of course, he has like 10 years of experience and he's been doing yeah. it for... So it's not like it's just like he just popped into it. But recruiting is an amazing business. It's it's a really good business for uh uh like if you have a one to three person shop, I think you could kill it. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, yeah, of the of the like agency servicey type businesses, headhunting, executive recruiting, executive placements seems to be like a one of the best. If you're going to go into service, that's like one of the best service industries to do. Yeah, I completely agree. What's a uh, Amazon liquidation? Because you've been talking to Jack about it. I saw I saw the messages. You were hollering at him. Well, I just start to pay attention, right? This is one of the one of the, the the meta lessons of listening to this podcast, right? You listen to this podcast, you should start seeing businesses everywhere, right? Like your cousin comes up to you, you're just, you're saying hello, but you're looking at everything that they're wearing, and you're thinking, oh, what's this bit? What's that brand? I've never heard of that. Where'd that come from? What is this thing you're wearing on your wrist? Uh, and so you start to like see businesses. Everywhere you go, you go to the, I told you the story. I was at the dentist. He's doing a cavity thing. I'm looking at his monitor wondering, what software is that? Ooh, who's selling software to the dentist that, that looks at the x-rays? That is like, this looks like it's from 1980. Like that's probably, that's probably like a super successful business because they didn't have to update their software. That's how when I know it's that good of a business. Whenever I drive by a library, a university or a church or a uh, school and I see someone, it's named after someone, I'm always looking them up on Wikipedia. I'm like, right, right, right. Where, where did this come from? Because if, right. if you have a and library way, named after you, you're a baller. And we have uh, the, the Billy of the Week I'm going to talk about this week is, is exactly that. So, all right. So anyways, the, the idea is you see business everywhere. So same thing happens with ads. Now, every time you see an ad, it's not this annoying thing to scroll by. It's like, huh. Who are you that you can spend money to get in front of me? Are you making money? Who? What is this business? So I saw this ad on TikTok that was basically like, it was somebody receiving at their doorstep, not a package, but a pallet of packages. <laughs> like a normal person was like so excited to open their door and they like, you know, like you see it like a shipyard, like a yeah. pallet of boxes just taped up and they're all like a mismatch of boxes. It wasn't even like, it didn't look good. So I was like, what's that? And he just said, get a pallet of uh, Amazon. It was like Amazon liquidation. Get a pallet of Amazon goods for like $10. <laughs> That's some, like ridiculous, ridiculous like claim. And uh, the, one, the one that I was looking at what, was... What, do you remember what the service was called? Okay, so, so look up this, this URL. Charming, so C-H-A-R-M-I-N-G, charmingzr.shop, right? So you already know. This is some fucking dropshipper motherfucker who is doing this. This this is not a, a long-term brand that they are, they are investing into. Charming. Um, charming. ZR. ZR dot shop. Dot shop. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, okay. So, yeah. So, it's like a drop. Yes. It's just shit. They're just selling just crap. Shit. Right. Okay. They're so, selling so that, like so the, the, the crappy leggings that you see on TikTok. So, like look we, in the thread that me and... Look in the thread that me and Jack and you are in and uh, look, click that exact link. So, this says... 
huge value backlog, picking liquidation package, $9.99. And then you see these giant, like from an Amazon warehouse packages, and it's basically returns. Uh, and you can get like the medium value, you get the large, you get the super large, the super large one, which I think is, or the whole thing, which is what the picture is of, is $60. $60. So $60 for the whole thing. And so here's what it says. Uh, if you just scroll down their site, and you know it's good because look at this. It has like the flashing yellow and red text. So like this is some, again, dropshipper motherfucker who's like, I'm going to optimize this. Limited stock. It's flashing red. And he goes, in the United States and Europe, Amazon, eBay, and other e-commerce platforms have too many returns. And there's no redundant warehouses to accommodate those returns. Therefore, as a top liquidation company, we've collected these returns at a very low price and put them repackaged into pallets for sale. Some of the packages in the pallets lack the outer packaging, like there's no box. Um, some of them and the functions are normal and do not affect the use at all. This is why we can sell these at low prices. And it says, this is a mixed pallet of Amazon bulk, which is also like junk. Um, there's just a whole bunch of random things. And it's like, you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> you know, that's the, like, the, the listen to their Listen to their sizing. It's medium, large, and super large. <laughs> With and, three fire emojis, by the way. <laughs> and the picture is like a pallet wrapped in plastic. It looks like a, like a Nintendo and like an oven, a coffee maker. Do, we have to by order the way, this, right? Okay. Five to 14 businesses. Yeah, we need to do that. By the way, you want to grow the YouTube channel? Here's a stunt that becomes a YouTube video that's I ordered an Amazon liquidation thing for 60 bucks. Here's the unboxing of my liquidation. So, so I don't know where you're at. If not, if you don't want to do it, I'll do it. But, uh, but we should do this and film it. And I think, I think you'd be great at this. Your American Pickers days are going to come back in, in handy here. All right. I'll so do it. let me just tell I'll you a few other hilarious things. Oh, customer service. Guess what his customer service email is, Sam? What is it? <laughs> Is, Wait, is it is it help at a help desk at charming ZZ shop? No. Is it sub service? Is it returns? No. Oh, is it like big baller sixty nine? Yeah. Speed Arver Speed of Villa Act ninety six at gmail.com. Oh my god, this is awesome! <laughs> Did you saw a Facebook ad for this TikTok? I've been getting TikTok ads for this thing like crazy. So I bet you this guy's found some arbitrage where this is hitting on TikTok. And he's just, he's just advertising or he's retargeting me at least because I'm seeing quite a bit of it. But there is this market. And so I, I mentioned this to Jack because Jack, who is our clever friend, Jack Smith, who just finds shit like this before we do typically. He's, he's always like into interesting stuff. So he had told me about this like a year ago. He's like, yo, there's this Amazon liquidation thing. You should check this out. And I was like, what? What is that? And then he sent me something that was actually a, like the high class version of this. So, uh, so a blue lot. Yeah, so bluelots.com. So that's the YC version of this. I don't think it took off. What they were doing was they were taking these pallets, these liquidations, and they were just listing them for like an instant auction, like a live auction. It's like the retail price of these items would be $500. You can buy it for 14 Go, like just click buy now. And they're just basically taking junk, I think on kind of consignment and um, and flipping it. And so this is like a flipper business of liquidations. But I don't really know anything else about it. I just thought this was funny and interesting. And I don't know. What do you think about this? So let me tell you what I would do. I wouldn't do it the way the Blue Lot's doing it. So there's this company that we wrote about in 2020. It's called it's it's called Unclaimed Baggage. That's all it's called. And right. what it does, it's based out of, I believe, Alabama, Scottsboro, Alabama. It has like 200 employees. It was launched in 1970 by a guy named Hugo Owens. And 
when he launched it, basically the idea was he made a deal with the local airport and it says any luggage that has been there for like 30 days or whatever it is, you, you know, we'll take it off your hands and they just have a, a huge store and you, and they also have an online store, but they have a location. It's like a warehouse that you can go and buy all the stuff and all the stuff that's in it. And I believe he's crushed it. And so it kind of looks like, um, Kind of, you know, like remember, like Ross stores or like yep. uh, Marshalls, TG like Max, yeah, yeah, the stores it, where it's like it's not high quality shit. It's mostly crap, but you can find some gems. But it's like just there's stuff all over the place, um, <laughs> you know. And it's like fun. It's kind of fun. Like you go there and like you, I don't even know what this thing is, but like this Bluetooth speaker, I don't need it, but I'm gonna buy it any. I'm I'm gonna buy it. Right. Um. That's what I would do with this. Is I would have a massive store and just sell this stuff. I wouldn't do it online. Um, I would do it 100% in person in a cheap area where it's relatively low income and I would have tons of stuff. And by the way, by the way, the unclaimed baggage thing, it says, uh, cool bags get lost. Uh, and then 99.5% of them like get back to their owners. But it, then it says less than 0.03% are never claimed. And so they made an agreement with all the airlines that says with, uh, it says, we will kind of give these bags a second life. We'll take it off your hands so you don't have these bags, unclaimed bags that are just sitting here. And we can resell um, We can resell the items that are from it. They say only about a third, one third of the unclaimed items can be resold. They go through like a kind of a QA process that says, and they have about 7,000 uniquely discounted items uh, for sale each day where, uh, where they got from, from unclaimed baggage. And then they have like an online store. And and they they clean. So what they do is they clean the clothes before they get them. They clean seventy thousand clothing items a month, and a million <laughs> people go to the store every single year. And it's about one hundred and fifty miles outside of Atlanta, so people are going like just for this store. It's like right. a, it's like I, a, it's like a, a sticky type of like cute thing to do. I have a friend. You should check this guy out on Twitter. He's pretty interesting. This guy Sunny Bird, Bird with a Y. Um, he has a. He created like a returns business. He had a clothing brand and he saw oh, one of the challenges is somebody sent something back for a return or an exchange and he was selling like suits that were like I don't know, a few hundred dollar suits or something. And then what he did was he was like, all right, look, um, you, you uh, he basically was like, all right, you send back the suit. Now I need to like get this stain off or I need to reapply the tag or I need to do this other thing. Otherwise, this is like an un unsellable item. And so he like got a facility basically in North Carolina somewhere and started accepting these items for him for, for his own returns first and started getting good at refurbishing them, like reapply the label, get the stain out, re-steam it so it's not wrinkly or crumbled up. Or like he's like, dude, you I can't even explain the number of variations of how people send back the shit wrong. And he's like, so we just had to handle all those variations. And once he started doing it for himself, he was like, Oh, cool. I could just make this any brand. You could just if you have items like this, just send them to us. We'll turn them over $7 per item or something like that. And then we'll like, you can go resell that item. We, we brought it back to life for you to be able to resell it as new. And, um, and I thought that was pretty interesting and he's doing well. And he is like, it was just one of those like kind of messy businesses. That's like, you wouldn't, I wouldn't really want to start it, but I totally think it's going to kick ass for whoever is willing to do the work there. In 2014, when I launched my first conference, HustleCon, I was like crazy cheap and I didn't have a lot of money. And Costco is famous for like taking so many returns. And I bought right. like, maybe it was a second conference, but I think I bought like $10,000 worth of stuff from Costco. 
ranging from tables to tablecloths to like two grand worth of soda. And we didn't end up using a lot of it. And I was like, let's just return it. And I returned like three to four thousand dollars worth of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm so I'm so cool. I'm like getting money back. So we feel I'm saving. <laughs> and one of it, I like to this day, I still lose sleep over this because I found out there the cashiers were like giving me a hard time. They're like uh, looking at me funny. Yeah. And, uh, the, and the reason why and I kind of overheard them say it, they threw all of it away. Oh, they just, really? They just threw it right away. It was like, but I was like, but this is like a case of soda that's like still in the wrapper. Like there's nothing wrong. <laughs> and they're like, our rule is we just throw it all away. away. And I was yeah. devastated. That was one of the <laughs> biggest regrets that I've ever had is returning $4,000 worth of stuff <laughs> that was like consumables that they ended up just throwing away. Like it, it breaks my heart that I did that. And, uh, well, and so, at least you, you have an answer to the question of like, what's your biggest regret in life? You got your answer. Actually, this should be a thing people do. There's all these questions of like, oh, you know, what's the best, what's your favorite movie? What's the biggest regret you ever had? You know, what's the, what's been a turning point in your life? Whatever. This is random questions that you only get so often, but it's very fucking hard to think of a good answer on the spot. And so we should all just do ourselves a favor and like one day just be like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to write down my answers to all these questions. <laughs> and then That's, you have them. And I've got two of them. Because if That's you have a great answer in that moment, you're like a star because nobody That's else can one even of think them. of anything. That's one of them. The second one was when I was in college, I went to a tip a guy like a, I was staying at a hotel and the shuttle was driving me around and I gave the guy like $20 and he goes, Oh, well, thank you. And I said, Oh, no, you need it. And I meant to say like, you earned it or something like that. And I say, Oh, no, you need it. And I was devastated. I was like, oh so my God. angry that I haunted behaved that by way. That. I'm haunted by that. I said, you need it. And I was like, oh, my God. That was the worst thing I could have said. Well, I meant to, just to say you deserve it or you earned it is stupid already. I don't know why I would right, have said right. that. Already bad, yeah. Oh, it's like that. Dude, those two things so I think about all the time. I'm like, what the was I thinking? Right. Yeah. That'll hit you once a week and you just have a wave of sadness. Like that's like the bad version of, you know, the flight attendant or you check in at the front desk or whatever for your, for the, at the airport and they're like, hand you the boarding pass. Like have a good flight. And you're like, you too. Yeah. And you walk away and you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> By the way, bleep that out. If people are listening in the car with their kids, all right, you can bleep that one out. So, okay. So I'll tell you, by the way, I have a theory on this stuff, which is it's my Halloween costume rule. All right. So, so what is this? There's an art to these stories. So the way you just did it was perfect, which was you tell the story. It does the job like you, you did something regrettable, but it's not like you said, like, you know, uh, you know, I hit my girlfriend back in the day. It's like, whoa, bro. Like, you know, you're not actually supposed to like put some dark shit out there or something really bad that makes you look bad. Like these are things that are kind of endearing. Like it's endearing. Like it's, it's funny that you did it. You made an honest mistake. And then you recognize it. And it's still haunts you to this day. Oh, what a good guy. And we all had a laugh. And I feel like I got to know you. And you're an interesting guy. It's So this happens with Halloween costumes. One time I went on a... I was in Australia. And it was Halloween. And they had a booze cruise. And so we went on. And I'll always remember there was this... There was, you know, the Halloween thing. Most guys dress up as whatever. But most most females is like... The, it's like okay to be kind of slutty on Halloween, right? It's like okay yeah. to dress a certain way to like kind of like you could spice it up. But so, you don't want to have your Halloween costume be accurate and inconvenient. So I saw this one girl, she came on the on the booze cruise and she was dressed up as a bushel of grapes. 
And so she just had balloons all over her body, like green balloons. And so she looked like, like, you know, like, like grapes on a, like she was this, the vine or whatever. And there was grapes all over her, but she couldn't like, she couldn't have fun on the cruise. Like she was bumping into everybody. Everybody hated her. She couldn't dance. She could barely breathe. It was like so hot in there. And like, she paid the price for having this creative and accurate looking costume. And in my head, when I saw this bushel of grapes girl just struggling the whole cruise, she couldn't even get off this boat. She was just stuck there in her costume. I was like, oh, the Halloween principle, which is like, there, you don't want to be, you don't want to answer all questions accurately if it's going to make you look bad. (laughs) So there's a way to answer something. There's a way to do the game, to play the game, but still look good in the process. I can't believe you're making frameworks up when you're like 18. (laughs) <laughs> yeah as i'm drunk on this boost cruise that's what i was thinking about i like made a mental note never make this mistake as i saw her because i would do this i would come up with a clever idea and then it'd be like i'd have like the most inconvenient night so i i, I it resonated with me what rami actually said something amazing that i that i it was just one line and he said when i think of copywriting it's uh he goes uh effective not cute you remember when he, right. he said something yeah like yeah that. He, He's like effective, not cute, not clever, something like that. Yeah, and and that was, and I I think that's always the best. I'm like, whenever I see websites that are, I'm like, that's not effective. It's cute, right. not effective. Be effective. Right. Don't be charming or whatever he said. Yeah, exactly. Um, you want to do one more, or you want to talk about? I, I'm eager to talk about Harold, but we could do one more if you want. Well, let's do Harold because it's actually it actually relates to the liquidation, Amazon liquidation thing. I'll tell you why. So, okay, so where did this come from? This is the cue the music. Billy of the week is this guy, Harold Alfond. I had never heard of this guy. Did you know, did you know this name before I wrote this here? No. And I added a bunch of stuff though for you. Okay, great. So let me give you kind of like the brief story and then you fill in the gaps of what you found interesting. So here's the brief story. I, or I'll go backwards, Tarantino style. Last time we were on here or two podcasts ago, something like that, we talked about universal basic income, which is this idea of like every year you would just get like a $10,000 check and like, Oh, why? Like, oh, so, you know, everybody, it's like social, well, social service or whatever, social security for everybody, um, and including non-retired people, unemployed people, everybody. So I had said, oh, I heard this interesting idea. And I forgot that it was Chamath who had said this, that I heard it from, uh, of, of a birth dividend instead, which is basically giving somebody some money at birth. If, you, if you're a citizen, the government gives you X dollars at birth. And the beauty of it is it's going to compound over 18 years. So by the time you're 18, they only had to give you a thousand. It was invested in the economy. And then it grows over time to this larger amount. By the time you're 18, you want to go for college, you have something there. So two things happened. A bunch of people on Twitter were tagging me saying, dude, I actually did this for my kid. Uh, and look at this. And so some guy was sharing screenshots of like, I put in, I think it was, a, it put in a thousand dollars or something like that. And then he's like, and then I added, um, I think it was 50 or a hundred dollars a month. And he showed that the balance was now $93,000 that was in this. And he's like, how much, he's like, it's, how much had they invested? It's crazy that it grew. I don't know. I don't know all the details, but he was basically saying like, yeah, I did this for my kid and, I, you know, it was a great idea for me. And um, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And so then I saw that somebody, somebody goes, yeah, it's like Harold Alfond in Maine. I said, okay, I, I don't even know what any of those words mean. What, what are you talking about? So I Google it. And basically there's this guy, Harold Alfond. He was kind of like a shoe mogul, basically. He, he, uh, wor- he started off as a shoe boy working in a shoe store. I don't even know what the job title is, but he went from like shoe boy to manager. Then he left and him and his dad buy a factory. They buy a factory, a shoe factory, and they flip it in three years to a larger company. And then he goes and he buys another factory 
called the Dexter, either like the place is called Dexter or something like that, but it's like the Dexter Shoe Factory, something like that. And he becomes, he becomes a, uh, a private labeler. So he's making the shoes that are being sold in JCPenney and Sears and a bunch of other like uh, department stores nation, nationwide. And so that, that grew pretty fast as he became their shoe, their shoe provider. And, uh, and then he says, all right, it's, I'm, I'm so worried. I, like if JCPenney cuts me off or they're always putting price pressure on me because they know I'm, they're, they're my big customer. Like screw it. I'm going direct. So this guy hires a sales force, creates a public facing brand called Dexter Shoes or whatever, and takes it like kind of nationwide himself, starts to be successful. But the thing that's interesting is, or this two things. So his business story gets interesting because he actually ended up inventing the outlet store, which is similar to what we were talking about with the liquidation thing. So in any factory, he knew this because he owned factories and any factory, not a hundred percent of the shoes are like up to snuff, up to the standard, right? So what do you do with the like non first grade shoes that were made? Uh, he's like, you would either throw them away, like you mentioned, or you would sell it to, we call it like a jobber. I don't know what that means, but you'd sell it to a jobber for a dollar. He would go market up and sell it for $5 somewhere. He's like, hey, that's pretty good, like 5X. Uh, why don't I just do that myself? A jobber so he, is, is typically, it's just a company that distributes. So it's a, they have shelf space at Kmart and they just need gotcha. stuff to fill it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, exactly. So, so what he did was he's like, I'll create my own. And so he creates this, this kind of signature look, this log cabin looking store. And he's like, this is where you can go get the stuff for cheap because these are the, the kind of like refurbished or not quite, not like kind of odd size, slightly imperfect. And so he creates an outlet store. He's, so he creates the concept of outlet stores. It gets really popular. Other brands start to see that, oh, wow, this guy's like, he's turning his waste into revenue, uh, his cost into, into profits. Like, okay, we want to do the same. So they start opening up stores right next to his off the highway. And so that's how you started to get these like fact, uh, so what do we call it? like outlet malls? where you would get a bunch of different stores all putting their outlet stuff together here. And so that was kind of like one of his inventions. Anyways, he ends up selling the company to Berkshire Hathaway. So he sells it to Warren Buffett uh, for $433 million in an all-stock deal of Berkshire. And I think you added some notes here, but all I know is that later on, um, Warren Buffett apparently said like, you know, this was one of the worst investments I ever made. So why did he say that? What I added there was basically when he bought it, I think he bought it in the 80s. When he bought it, he said, "It's this business is amazing. He And he wrote, Dexter, I can assure you, needs no fixing. It's one of the best managed companies Charlie, have, Charlie and I have ever seen in our business lifetimes. Right. Um, he says, a business jewel. He goes, when I go to work, I sing. There's no business like the shoe business. He thinks it's excellent. <laughs> um, but what the issue that happened ar- around that time is basically... Uh, cheap international stuff started coming into coming into right. America, and he said something like, "He goes, well, cheap imported shoes from low wage countries started coming, um, but someone forgot to tell the Dexter's managers and their workers about that, <laughs> and they just forgot to address it. And so over right. time, he, he he predicted that it was going to make about a hundred, hundred twenty, hundred fifty million dollar a year in profit. After a handful of years, it ends up losing tons of money. He merges it with Burlington Coat Factory, or at least tries to, and eventually it goes." It, 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 it goes, it's done. And the, a big problem with, was that Harold started the company in a small town in Maine where basically 2,000 people worked. And at this point, they were mostly older people. And, and Buffett was like, well, we just lost all this money. It was a horrible... He goes, if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, it goes down as the worst deal ever. But the worst part is now all these people are all out of work and they pretty much are too old to learn a new trade and, we, and, and they're screwed. And so right. he calls yeah, it the, one the of the cor- worst deals of all time. 
The quote was, we lost our entire investment, which we could afford, but many workers lost a livelihood that they could not replace. Uh, okay, good, good, good guy, Warren Buffett. All right. So, so, okay. This is where, okay. Harold, Harold, uh, Alphon now has a bunch of money, a bunch of Berkshire stock. Berkshire stock continues to appreciate over time. So he, he sold it in 1993. Berkshire has just continued to grow and grow and grow, uh, over the years. So anyways, I think, I think he owned one, uh, over 1% of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Wow. That's kind of incredible. I don't, I don't know what Berkshire's market cap is now. Dan, check, check Berkshire's market cap now, but he sold it in an all-stock deal. So whatever that $433 million was worth, if he held, uh, it ended up being worth a hell of a lot more. So what's interesting is, the, like you said, the guy's in Maine, and what he decided to create, he starts giving away, so he starts giving, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to, uh, live. you need a new library? I'll fund it. The, the University of Maine, you need a football field? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll fund it. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway, $654 billion. Uh, and by the way, Dan, check what it was in 1993 when he sold. Uh, I want to see how much it's grown. So, so he starts giving away. One thing he decides to do, he says, he says, you know, education is the most important thing. I didn't get to go to college just because of my what my opportunities were. I want to make sure everybody has that opportunity. I think it's one of the greatest opportunities you could have. So he creates uh, a pledge where he says, I will give $500 to every baby born in Maine on their kind of like birthday, uh, you know, th- when they're born. That in a 529 account, right? So in this like special kind of like tax advantage savings account, if you open up your account, I'll put $500 in. And by the time they're 18, that will have grown uh, over time. It'll have appreciated. Um, and so he starts doing this. And at the beginning, he does it for like, you know, whatever, a few hundred people, then a few thousand people. So now life is, so let me just break down some of the numbers here. So $60 million has been given away to babies in Maine for their college tuition. Uh, that's 117,000 babies that have taken him up on his offer for free money, uh, statewide. So it's a four, it's the largest statewide college savings program is sponsored by this one dude and his like family trust, I suppose. Uh, families, the families, because they open up the account, they can kind of like, his, he was big on matching. So everywhere he gave, he wanted the recipient to match in some way, whether it's money or effort, or you have to do something rather than just give. So in this, you had to open the account, which was, a bunch of people weren't doing that before this. And the second thing was you can then match the $500 that goes in because you realize it's a good idea. And so the, here's the, the basic math. If you had just, if you just took the $500, by the time you're 18, it's about $2,000, right? So it's gone up about 4X in the 18 years. But if you contribute $50 a month, it's $25,000 by the time you're 18. And th- that $25, or sorry, the $50 a month, that's like achievable for many, many families. And then you have $25,000 that like can pay for, for you know, state college tuition and, and whatnot, give you an education. And so I kind of love this. I thought this was a baller move to like build up your hometown. And he's given away $500 million just in Maine across various programs. I thought, I thought it was pretty remarkable. The foundation think- has a billion in assets. So they give away about five, oh, sorry, six to 8% a year of their total assets. And I think his son is like a senator in Maine, right? I think like- That's right, his grandson. Uh, so the family is, I mean, I guess they're legends in Maine. That's pretty baller. This makes right. me want to like get wealthy just for that reason. You're going to go right? back to St. Louis and do a little something or what? I don't know. I've been out for so long, but did you, you I'll can make you a big the- donation to uh, Belmont, uh, your Belmont's that. finest alumni. Yeah. <laughs> did you, um, I'll put you in the spot. Did you donate anything to the Haiti thing or the Afghanistan or any other cause this year? Uh, we did the, a bunch of stuff for the wildfires, which I don't know if that was this year or not. Uh, or, uh, and then the other one was uh, charity water. We tried to support. I don't know if we did it this year or not. 
Um, and then the last one, uh, Sonia, if she sees anything that's like for like animals or like, it's like, she's a vegan. So she, if she sees the animals are like distressed somewhere, she really wants to give. And so we'll give a little bit there, but we're not big givers. I was actually, we were talking about this the other day. It's like, we have this idea, like she, my wife really wants to open up an orphanage in India. This has been her dream since we were dating. She's been talking about this. Like she wants to have like, if you go to India, you see these like tiny, tiny kids on the street begging. It's like heartbreaking. So she wants to open up an orphanage where, you know, they can kind of have a place and not be on the street. And, uh, and I told her, I was like, you know, like, I feel like we made it. And she's like, no, like but when we really make it, and I was like, you know, that time will never come. We should just start giving now proportionally, whatever we can give now. And then like, when the time comes that we can open up a full orphanage, great. We'll already have been like doing the thing and taking some suffering away for some people. And so we were literally just talking about this. So I don't really give either. I, we gave, um, low digit thousands to the Haiti and Afghan stuff. And that was like a, a big, that was the biggest donation I've ever made. Right. Um, and it, uh, maybe, sorry, it was, it might've been two grand, I think 1000 each. And I tip that that's new. We don't ever do that. And I realized that's a huge mistake. That is such a huge mistake. And I think it's a huge mistake for, for a, one major reason, two major reasons. One, it makes you feel so good to do that. Right. Even, it, you know, no one has to know, but it, I guess, I'm breaking that rule. I'm telling a bunch of people. But um, the second thing, it can like giving away money, I think will make you earn more. So John Rockefeller was famous. He, he actually gave 10% of his income every single year, starting at age like 12. Like the year he right. started making money, he always gave it away. We talked to, uh, we, we joke about Mormons. They do this uh, a ton. A lot of Christians, they do tithing. I guess that's 10%. Right. I don't know how different other, I, I don't know how other religions do it. I'm sure each religion has like their version of this. We should totally give more, and we don't, and it's kind of messed it's up. Crazy. Uh, it, it is. It's, I think it's wrong. Um, I I like kind of convince myself. I'm like, well, if I I'll just tip a lot, which is like kind of <laughs> bullshit. But it's not right. entirely bullshit, but it's half bullshit. We should totally give more. We don't give nearly enough. Um, and so that's cool to read the story. Whenever I read these stories, I'm like, I want to get wealthier just to do this. There's a guy who um, what what was the guy's name in San Francisco? And there was this amazing article. What it was called, the billionaire who gave it all away. You know what I'm talking about? His name was Patrick um, uh, uh, Patrick Feeney, I think. Is his name Patrick Feeney? Um, let me look it up. So anyway, he, his name is Chuck Feeney. So he created the basically the stores that you... I'm going off of memory. I, I read his book a while ago. He's 90 years old. He currently lives in San Francisco. I, uh, I'm reading this. Uh, the billionaire We, we who wanted, did a Billy of the Week on him. Chuck Feeney. I remember you brought Chuck him up. Chuck Feeney, the billionaire who wanted to, to die broke and is now... And, and did it, basically. Right. And he's now worth $2 million at his height. Was, he was, was worth... he the one? Somebody wrote a book called Die With Zero or something like that. Is no, that that's, a different, that's a different topic, but it's also okay. good. But basically, the idea is like a lot of people wait to give all their money away. This guy did it when he was live. His name was Chuck Feeney. He basically created when you're, uh, if you uh, go to China and you're not China, I don't, he, he did Japan. If you're on your way back from Japan, you can go to the duty free shop. Uh, he basically oh, yeah. he basically invented that, and now he's got a bunch of duty free shops. They're they're quite famous. I, I can't remember what they are, but his uh, it was cash flowing like crazy. And so at its height, he had something like it was multiple digit billions. I believe eight billion dollars, and that's how much he's given it away. So he's given all of it away except for $2 million. And he currently has an apartment in San Francisco that costs him four or $5,000 a month. And that 2 million is all he's got left. Crazy wow. fascinating. I remember reading about him and I was like, I want to get rich just to do that. So pretty cool. But like a lot of people, when they start making money, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know. That, that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't uh, even know what, what is the thought? There is some thought that like, kind of like blocks you, but 
what I can't even put my finger on it. It's not like I can say, well, I'm thinking about it this way, but that's the wrong way. It's like, I don't, I think I'm just not thinking about it or I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And then it kind of becomes a heavy topic because I think I should do more. And then I feel guilty. And then I just move on with my life. And I just do nothing. I distract myself. You know, I don't want to blow up his spot too much, but the guest we just had on Ramit, I've heard stories. I've heard that he is a very good giver. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I like hearing how people give. I have a friend who, uh, as soon as he made a bunch of money, gave a ton of laptops away. And I thought that, you know, there's like a, there, there's something really cool about when you give somebody uh, a knowledge engine or, a, or, or like a monetization engine. It's like, you know, it's sort of like a teach a man to fish thing, but you're not teaching anybody anything. You're just giving them a tool that if used well, can generate like kind of an infinite number of returns. And so I like that idea of like, you know, whether it's micro lending or it's, or it's, uh, you know, that what was that project where they dropped a tablet off? Do you remember this? They dropped a tablet off in the middle of Africa with no instructions. And no. Did you, do you, you know what I'm talking about? No. So they, I might butcher some of the details. They ran this experiment. They left an Android tablet, which I think had like nothing, like kind of like nothing on it. I think it was like a wiped reset thing. Maybe it was just like the, the boot sequence. And they just left it in this like village in Africa. And, uh, and then they came back like a year later and like the whole village had learned how to use this computer, how to use the tablet. They had like found it, booted it up, got an operating system on it, had apps. It was like running. It like they had like learned all, put all these education games on it or whatever. It was like, uh, yeah, Dan just linked it here. I, I didn't remember the exact story. So, uh, I guess it's Ethiopia. So, uh, a box. A box of Zoom tablets was dropped off in an Ethiopian village to kids who had never seen a computer before. And by the time they came back, they had not only taught themselves how to use it, they were like modifying the Android operating system on it to like work better for themselves. It was kind of this like really inspiring story. It was almost so inspiring that I'm like, all right, is this a little bit of bullshit or what? Like, I, I kind of don't really care, but I like that. I think that's that just shows how much power there is in, in such a simple act. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, we should have we should organize something for like our listeners to like. Yeah, we should do something via the pod. Let's give some. Let's give something fun via the pod. Well, my, um, what, the the way that we gave to the Afghanistan, I think we only gave him a thousand dollars, so it wasn't like that big of a deal. But the guy, his name is Sol, S O S O L space, and then Orwell is his last name. He owns uh, Examine dot com. He just tweeted out that he was going to do this, and he was like, "I'm going to p- give it away." He's like, "I vetted this. I know where the money is going to go to for this. I know exactly what's happening. Right. You, if you trust me, then you'll then you can trust that this is going to be good." And he raised four hundred thousand dollars off a couple of tweets, um, and that was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. and it sounds badass. So we'll have to do something like that. Uh, I think there's a lot of work to vetting in Haiti. Sarah's, mo- you know, Haiti had this massive earthquake. You know about earthquake, that? Yeah. Yeah, and my mother-in-law is from Haiti, and she's got this brother. So my 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 mother-in-law's uncle. brother, yeah, no, my brother's brother, yeah, my uncle, I guess. He is a Haitian immigrant, and one and when the, the uh, another earthquake happened, what he did was he got all of his friends to donate a little bit of money. Collectively, it added up to like a hundred thousand dollars. So he had a hundred thousand um, dollars, maybe he had two hundred thousand dollars, something like that. 
um, a, a lot, but not enough that it's like too much. And he took a hundred grand in cash and one dollar bills and five dollar bills. And then he hired a private plane and they bought tons of toilet paper, paper towels, and peanut butter. They flew into Haiti. They gave out the peanut butter and gave out the toilet paper. And then he had all this cash. And he's like, dude, they just needed money to buy shit. And like U.S. currency was good. So I just started giving everyone five dollar bills. So anyone I could find, yeah. I would just give them five dollar bills. And then he goes, and then we stayed there for a day and we gave it all away. And then we just came right back. And I was like, wow. that's pretty baller. That's pretty great. <laughs> uh, and so I don't know, something like that. It's inspiring to hear. So we're gonna have to do something about that. If somebody's listening to this and they have a good idea of a way for us to give that I would say is what my hope is that it's kind of like in line with the values of the pod. Like if you listen to this, you kind of know what we're all about, what we respect. Like I, I respect that kind of like tab- giving tablets to people who never had Me a too. computer before. Right? I think that's kind of amazing. And so if you can think of a good way for us to do this, where you kind of, you know, where the money's going, you know, it's legit, you know, that this is going to like actually help people, um, definitely hit us up, hit us up on Twitter or whatever. Give us ideas. Can we go a little bit over? Can I ask, can I, there's one, something you want. I I have a lot of stuff on here. Did you see, I did a ton of research on a variety of different stuff and you totally overlapped with a lot of my stuff. Scroll down, look at all that stuff. I'm going to have to get to it all. It's like so much work that I put in. We're going to have to get to it next (laughs) week. But can can we wrap up with the theory of of the future of venture capital? Yeah, because I'm curious what your opinion is and is why you're saying the, this. Is that one of the things you research, or you want me to spiel? I want you to tell me your opinion. Okay. So I was thinking about this. Um, so basically, I was like, all right, venture capital, I think, is a great place to be because I think technology is driving a ton of progress. So you you basically. If you want to bet on the future of humanity and where a lot of growth is going to come from, investing in technology is the way to do it. That's pretty clear to me. All right. So within that, how do you perform well? So I was thinking about, all right, you have venture capital. And venture capital is kind of changing. And people like to talk about this. So here's my theory. Why is it changing? It's changing because uh, like, A, there's just new, like the secret's out that you should be investing in, in technology. So you have like SoftBank coming over the top with the $100 $100 billion vision fund. And then you have Tiger Global. You, do you know what's going on with Tiger? Well, I just know that I see Tiger Global everywhere. I believe Tiger Global, it started by a guy named Chase Coleman. His wife was in like some uh, actually documentary about being like filthy rich years ago. And he, uh, it was a hedge fund at first. It was just a hedge fund, like a boring, like maybe high speed trading hedge fund, right? Yeah. I have a of trading. You got to read this Substack. I mean, obviously not now we're on the pod, but it's called Playing Different Games. It's by this guy, Everett Randall. Phenomenal, phenomenal blog post about what Tiger is doing and how they're playing a different game. And um, it basically what it talks about is like uh, what this is most- a beautiful headline, by the way. If you want to learn about yes. how to package content into good stuff, this is a beautiful headline. It says playing different games, the Tiger phenomenon. Beautiful yeah, headline and, and, and stuff. And it's not it's not too clickbaity either. It's like seven unbelievable things about Tiger. No, it's like. It's it's a it's a this guy has a, a point of view or a, theory, a thesis on what they're what they're doing because to everybody else it looks a little bit crazy because what what you were seeing was oh new funding round happens tigers in it tigers in it tigers in it. saying dude how much how many deals are these guys doing they can't possibly be vetting and seeing this many deals this is an unbelievable pace and so what he talks about is that they're playing a different game so a normal fund says okay I raised this fund I'm going to deploy it over the next three years. And uh, that's what I told my my investors I was going to do. So over three years, I'm going to find the best deals I can. I'll be super selective. I want to find the best deals. And then I'm going to maximize the sort of like uh, the, the sort of return, the, the, the return I'm going to get, the IRR. And um, 
He says, what Tiger is going to do is like, I'm going to deploy as much capital as humanly possible at a 18% IRR. So I'm not trying to maximize IRR. I'm trying to maximize the gross dollars that I could shove into a pipe that will give me 18%. So I don't want to fall below 18%, but I don't want to try to get to 28% if it means I'm going to deploy half as much money. So it's a very different game. So, so this happens in e-commerce all the time. You have two people in e-commerce. One, one brand says, we want to maximize our ROI or return on ad spend, as some people say. But just call it ROI. So they want to put a dollar in and make $3 out. And, they're, and if, they, if they get $2 out, they feel bad. If they get $4 out, they feel great. And so they, they spend as much as they can while they're getting, they spend like as long as they can maintain a certain like above 3X ROI. And they have other people that say, no, you know what? Like I'm happy as long as my ROI is like, yeah, somewhere, somewhere above 1.5. If it's above 1.5, all I'm going to do is just add more money into the top of this thing. I'm going to shove more money in because I'm taking a larger number and I'm multiplying it by a smaller multiple, but my base, the base amount of money I'm shoving into the pipe is getting bigger. So this, that's my return. So you have different strategies. So what he was saying was Tiger's doing this in VC. They're basically trying to deploy way more money, way faster. So that their and their returns look better because it's instead of deploying it over three years and being selective, they're deploying it all in six months. And so now if it comp, if it starts to return, it's going to already have a faster rate of return because the money got deployed, whereas the, the VC might have held the money for three years being selective about it. How and are so, they solving the hard problem of making sure that the companies are going to collectively do 18% IRR? Well, they're sort of saying, look, uh, if, if the best guys who are selective are going to hit 30%, 40%, we can hit 18 just by getting, we, we can hit 18 by doing a lot of deals and sort of like a law of large numbers. We should still get there because technology in aggregate, the index is going to do something close to 18. And plus, as we develop this reputation of being, we are a trusted, fast deal maker. You want money? Come to Tiger Global. We'll get you money in 24 hours. We'll get you a lot of money. You don't have to do this whole dance with the other VCs and they're going to debate, bring you to and the they partner overpay. meeting. And they're like, yeah, cool. What's your, what valuation do you want? 50? Make it 60. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. I'll take your money. So they're getting into a lot of deals and a lot of good deals because they're not price sensitive, they're fast, and they're aggressive. And they're building a track record because when you do so many deals, they're going to have a bunch they can point to as like, yeah, Tiger was the one behind this winner. And they'll just sweep all their losers under the table and you don't have to worry about that. So they'll build reputation fast too. So I thought this was kind of interesting. So I would say there's a whole bunch of reasons why VC changes. This is actually not even what I was talking about. My, my thought was if you're creating a fund today, you really, the winning strategies are um, you, you play a different game, which is the Tiger one. So that's, that's strategy one. You play by a different set of rules than everybody else. I love that strategy, though. Another example of that is uh, uh, when Chamath moved up market to SPACs. So Chamath was doing early stage tech investing, Series A, Series B. He's competing with Sequoia and Benchmark and everybody else. And then he's like, oh, dude, SPACs? Uh, SPACs, you know, like SPACs weren't in vogue until he started to make them in vogue. The the mechanism had been around, but they weren't popularized and not everybody was trying to do a SPAC. And then he started this wave because he's like, huh. There's a bunch of companies that want to go public. I can take them public faster and get them a higher valuation. Um, and basically, I can do late, super late stage stuff and basically make 10x my money in one year. Um, and, so he's, and so he does one SPAC. He's like, oh, this is amazing. He did SPAC A. Then he trademarked SPAC B, SPAC C, SPAC D, all the way through SPAC Z. Trademarked 26 of these. He's like, dude, 
this is a money printer. I'm 10xing my money. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this 26 times if I can. I, and so, but, but the verdict's still out on that on that strategy, I believe, right? The like, sponsors the sponsors are making their money, dude. They make their money regardless. It's the retail investor who joins in and says, I'm gonna invest in in this SPAC. They are getting a questionable return. But the sponsor, Chamath, what he's doing. So here's the model, by the way. I, I learned this recently. So I might be oversimplifying it. I might have some details wrong. This is, I, was, I was at a dinner with somebody who was doing a SPAC and I was like, yo. Can you say who? Tell, no. I was, like, I was like, tell me the numbers behind this. I was, like, I was like, are these guys getting filthy rich? I feel like they're making a lot of money doing this because just of how many they're trying to do, this must be a money. He's like, it's unbelievable. So here's, what, here's what, how the economics of a SPAC work. You, let's say you're a Chamath. You have a great reputation. So for those who don't know what a SPAC is, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition corporation or something. So it's basically a blank check holding company. So you go to the public market and you, you list your SPAC there and you say, give me $400 million. I'm going to take that $400 million and I'm going to go find a company to, uh, to invest in. And so, so he goes to the public market. He says, I don't know who I'm going to invest in, but I'm going to invest in somebody. But his reputation was strong enough that he was able to raise 400, 500, a billion dollars. Bill Ackman, I think, raised $7 billion or something crazy for their SPACs. But so they don't even know who they're going to acquire. You have a deadline. You have a two-year, I think, clock, 18 months to two years, something like that. You have a deadline. Where, and and, and if, you don't pay, if you don't buy a company, you have to buy it back plus a certain amount of interest. Yeah, there's like a warrant, basically. So, yes. um, so, so, And that's what's happening now with SPACs. A lot of SPAC investors have been sitting around waiting for the company to make do a move. They're just... They're, they're, it's like a coupon. Like you can basically say, give me my money back and they have to give you your money back and maybe plus some interest. I'm not sure exactly how that works. So for a SPAC, let's say it's a $250 million SPAC. The sponsor who's, you know, a Chamath or somebody in this case, and he, he's not the only one. Reed Hoffman's doing a SPAC. Well, a whole bunch of people are doing them. Uh, they put down about 3%. So let's say $250 million uh, 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 SPAC. I don't do public math, but I think that's about $8 million that they put in. In their, of their own capital. And then when they, uh-oh, everybody froze. Oh, we're back. I'm okay. Here. So you put, you put 3% down. When you find a deal and you actually do the deal, you're going to get 20% of the action. So you're putting 3% of the capital and you're going to get 20% of the, of the deal. So that's your flip right there. You put 3% in, you're going to own 20% by the end of it. Um, in addition to that, there's things called pipes. Pipe is basically, oh, I raised 400 million, but I need, turns out I found the company but I need $600 million to do the deal. So, so before it goes public, somebody can come in and give you that, that, that difference, that $200 million difference you're short, and they get a sweet deal too because they know the target. They put the money in, and then very quickly it gets liquid for them like, you know, because it goes, the deal ends up you know, in the public markets then announced. So there's a lot of money to be made in SPACs right now. There's also a lot if, of money to be lost if you're doing it wrong. If you're there's the sponsor, a lot of money to be, I think to be made. Money. There's a lot of money to be made if you are... A certain couple of people, a right. certain handful Which, of people. Which, by the way, is why it's so funny when people like Chamath, and I like Chamath, I think he's great, but I think he's a virtue signaler. Like, I think he uh, he loves to say the things that make him sound like the people's, you know, the people's like a Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. a Robin Hood, I'm saving, and everybody else is playing these bullshit games. Why don't we do real hard work and solve real problems and, and cut out the bullshit? And he's all about that, like those rhetoric. He's very yeah. good at those speeches. But if you look at what he did, it's like, Dude, you're you're playing the game just as hard as anybody else, in my opinion. You might believe you have better intentions about why you're playing the game, but like, let's be clear, 
And I don't you have I, a lot of you're an insider and you're an elite. You're not the every man, everyday man that you're you try he tries to kind of champion for. But I can't blame him. Like that's a good strategy. Instead of saying I'm a rich billionaire, like with insider access, you know, that doesn't play over so well. And I don't know if this is true today, but I think it was true. I believe that his SPACs, Chamas SPACs, are like the in aggregate of all across all of them, like the most shorted stocks on the stock market. Maybe, maybe they are now. I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked at that. But yeah, definitely people have cooled off on on some of the because if you look eight, what the thing is, you look eighteen months later after they do their acquisition target, you're like, how how are they doing? So like the typical SPAC curve was they list at ten dollars. Before they find a target, they trade up to twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen dollars. Right, so you're getting this return before anything has happened. Right, this is just like greed. And then they find the target, and then it either pops or it starts to shrink, depending on how people feel about the target. And then, like eighteen months later, where where is that stock? Is it at ten? Is it above or is it below? I think people are doing some good analysis on this. I'm not super up to speed because I didn't not, plan yeah, to talk not, about specs today. But um, but anyways, I think they're making one a lot example of money. is uh, Open Door. Have you uh, look at Open Doors stock? I, I think that's one of his spacs. Uh, Is it doing well or no? Well, just look at it. It's the exact arc. So you guys didn't couldn't see this, but right. Sean's uh, what, what's that arc called? It's just like a like a like a standard deviation <laughs> <Hype> cycle. <laughs> yeah, like a no, it was like a standard deviation <laughs> looking like chart, and that's exactly what Open Door looks like. It's like starts small, gets huge, goes back. Yeah, to list small. list at ten dollars. Runs up to $34 and is currently trading at 17, 15, 15 to 17. Um, and so, you know, there, if you were in the $10 bucket, yeah, you got it. You got to, you, you do have the gains right now. So, so I, I'm I, not saying specs are good about it. I guess what I'm saying is if you're my, my, my main theory here was you got to do something different. That's one way. If you found a different game. Now people are going to copy you just like they rent Chamath to his credit. Figured out that this was a good model, was the first one doing it. And then there's just been a flood of SPACs since then. Everybody and their mom who can SPAC will SPAC right now. And even startups who can't really raise well or don't, don't, aren't strong enough to go public, they can go public via a SPAC. And then all of a sudden, Hey, we got liquid. Great. Um, so, so there's definitely a lot of like lipstick on the pig going on. Wait. So we have to wrap up this segment, which was VC. You do the tiger thing, you become like Chamath or do something different. And those, so those are one. Those are play a different game. Tiger and spacking. That's an example of playing a different game. The second one is you're the big brand. So Sequoia, Benchmark, Andreessen, they're always going to get the best deals or they're going to get allocation if they want in the best deals because of their brand name. And those funds are so big and you can't even invest in them if you wanted to. If you're That seems like the hardest one to do. Well, yeah, because, okay, great. It's like saying, <laughs> start off and checkmate. You know, like, uh, how do I do that? How do I become that brand? That's obviously that takes time, but they'll do well. I'm just talking about who's going to do well. People playing a different game, then the big brands, then the niche specialists. So this is like, I'm a VC fund focused on cannabis. I'm a VC fund focused on automation and machine learning. I'm a VC fund focused on, um, let's call it SaaS software, like uh, David Sachs, Craft Ventures. So there's like a whole bunch of these, right? Vice Ventures. There's they, they brand themselves as specialists in this one thing. You could do a media one if you wanted to. And basically what happens is, if you picked a vertical that works, like SaaS is a good vertical, automation is a great vertical, right? Um, you're gonna see you, you're gonna see a lot of you're gonna see more deals than anybody else in that vertical than a generalist because you say no to everything else that's not this. So you're only spending your time here. You build your brand there by creating a bunch of content. You're blogging, you're podcasting about why automation is the future, why self-driving cars are the future, blah blah blah. So those founders will come find you. And then also, you, they'll keep you in deals. So even if Sequoia or Benchmark wants to do a deal, 
The founder will add you for that credibility because you're a specialist in that niche. And by you stamping them, it's valuable. And they think you're, you'll add value because you are more knowledgeable about this domain than anybody else. So I think the niche specialists can do well. Then there's celebrity angels. That's like uh, Naval, Balaji, same sort of thing as the, first, as the big brand. And then the last one is called venture services. What are venture services? Are you familiar with uh, Tusk, Tusk Ventures? Do you know what Tusk Ventures is? No. There's this, a, this guy, this guy Bradley, Bradley Tusk. He's got yeah, a Bradley book that, that you might have read. He was, um, I think he's like an ex-Washington policy guy. I don't know his story. Yeah, but yeah, basically, yeah. I know Bradley. He's like a policy guy. What he got kind of known for was when Uber was, Uber was in its early stages growing. Uber was having hella trouble with cities and the, the taxi uh, cartel and like all, every, every market they were fighting against taxis in the cities. And then the people wanted them there. And so they, he was giving them a bunch of consulting and advice. And then he got to invest and Uber was like one of the best investments of the decade for an angel investor. And he did that also with Airbnb, another group that had policy questions. And so any startup that had a regulatory or policy challenge, which actually many do, uh, it was like, oh, we should include Tusk in our round. That's what their value add is. And so he had a services business that was his consulting business for, for this that he built. I think he owned 100% of it. I think it's a $100 million business. And then he created a venture arm just to invest equity and get what, equity what, in what all was those. What the service? Just, uh, exactly this. Yeah, exactly. The, the sort of policy, legal, regulatory, so, advisement, uh, consulting. Uh, L- lawyer, basically. Lawyer, but specifically with like public policy, I think. So like lawmakers more so than like drafting your shareholder agreements. And so, you know, built this really successful services business, but didn't leave it as a service business, added a venture arm to it. And because of that, you owned equity and things that ended up being very, very valuable. And a lot of uh, ad agencies try doing this and they only do okay. They only do okay. I, th- I think that if you did it with a different a different shtick, like what this guy Tusk was doing, right. then it could be interesting. A lot of ad agencies will do that. I, like even you remember Red Antler and all those guys. Yeah, I think they took Sandwich a sliver video. of equity. Yeah. You you had to give them like like there was a minimum. It was like fifty grand plus some type of equity. Right. Well, friend of the pod, Andrew Wilkinson, he was doing this with Tiny, right? Uh, or sorry, with uh, MetaLab, the design agency. So design agency and. So Slack is paying them cash to design the first Slack client could have took equity also or could have had an equity arm that says, great, let me also invest in your next round or in this round with you uh, separately. We'll take the ba- cash on the balance sheet that we're making from consulting and we will invest it into the projects that we believe in that are in, in this portfolio. Would have done phenomenally well, but didn't do that in his case. Um, he used it to go buy businesses separately. Did you hear, do you know who David Cho is? No. So David Cho, and this will be the last story. David Cho is this kind of degenerate gambler, crazy guy. He's um, he when he was eighteen, he started traveling. He had a, a show when Vice was popular of him hitchhiking across the country. It was called like David Cho hitchhikes across the okay. country, and he's just kind of this degenerate, crazy person. But he's an artist, and he's like a wonderful artist, uh, graffiti artist. He's so good at it, and he's got some amazing work. And it, right when Facebook got started, David Cho was kind of like uh, a cool guy. Uh, like a lot of people knew who he was and they wanted his work. But, uh, you know, he was hard to get. And so eventually, Sean Parker hires him to paint Facebook's office. They want this, he wa- they right. paint this like amazing graffiti. And David Cho goes, uh, yeah, you know, it'll be 50 grand. And Sean Parker goes, uh, well, you want 50 grand in cash or 50 grand in Facebook uh, stock? And he goes, well, I'm a gambler. Give me the stock. <laughs> he takes the stock and it's worth like, 
$300 million uh, a few years after Facebook goes IPO. And it was all from this Facebook uh, wall that he painted. And I went to the Facebook office and they ended up taking down the, um, uh, or they moved to a different office, but they saved the wall. So throughout the office, you could still see the <laughs> David Cho painting. And That's so he amazing. ends up, I, he, at the time when I wrote the article, like four years ago, it was like $200 million that he made from the $50,000 right. worth of art. Now it's, way more he's actually on joe rogan all the time he's a crazy guy this guy david cho is nice i like it yeah Um, basically i think there's this model of venture services which is um you know uh bobby goodlotty is doing this with design uh bain did this back in the day so you have bain and co the consulting company and then bain capital was their venture arm that they used so i think that investors you can't just say you know i'm good at this i'll give you advice it's like i think there's going to be investors that say yeah, use my like I have a company that does this as an agency as a conserv- as a services company. And then we also invest. And that combination I think is going to be pretty powerful.